Welcome to Stone's Notes. I'm Maureen Stonehouse, geologist at Stone Consulting. On today's episode, I'm talking to John White, senior geologist with 26 years of expertise. He has been actively involved in developing the Charlie Lake Formation since 2014, and he is currently a senior geologist at Sprua. Today, we'll be discussing the Charlie Lake Formation with reference to John White's 2021 Geoconvention and Core Conference presentations titled Characterization of the Lower Charlie Lake a naturally fractured tight oil reservoir, Alberta, Canada, and Evaluation and Characterization of the Middle Charlie Lake, a naturally fractured reservoir. Some highlights include discussing all those unconformities. We're rocking out today with John White. Welcome to Stone's Notes. Good morning, John. Thanks for joining me. Hi. uh, Thanks, Maureen. Thanks for having me. So the Lower Charlie Lake tight oil play has seen increased horizontal well exploration and development in the Peace River Arch area, and the land sale prices have really skyrocketed in in the last few years. So if we take a look at the geology of the Charlie Lake, it's divided into the upper, the boundary, and the lower Charlie Lake by three major unconformities in the Charlie Lake, the pre-Jurassic, the boundary lake, and the Copland. So this makes the stratigraphy really complicated. And it also leads to stratigraphic subcrop edge traps where these Charlie Lake members have some pinch out to the east. What have you discovered about the Charlie Lake stratigraphy? Well, Maureen, uh, I've been studying the Charlie Lake uh, since uh, about 2015. And as I've investigated the architecture of the Charlie Lake, um, I've recognized that uh, it's got some internal, as you mentioned, stratigraphic relationships that were actually discovered quite early. So in in the 1950s and 60s, there was a lot of drilling and they discovered the Boundary Lake member. And that was a major oil discovery um, in in Boundary Lake actually, on the BC Alberta border. And they actually, uh, uh, a lot was published on that. And those pools were actually er erosionally trapped against the updip Copland and uh, Boundary Lake unconformities. Um, and as well as the discovery at Inga was also trapped at the uh, unconformities. So for a long time, uh, we've had exploration along these uh, edges and uh, unconformities in the Charlie Lake. And in the 1970s and 80s, they discovered big pools in the upper part of the Charlie Lake. And uh, those were trapped against the pre-Jurassic unconformity or, and also capped by the Nordegg, which was a good seal. Um, and that was in the Rycroft, Worsley areas, and um, the the reservoirs terminated against it there. So, yeah, and it's really all these traps are happening against these stratigraphic unconformities. So, subdividing them out and discovering where they are is really important to finding where the sweet spots are. Absolutely, yeah. So talking about the sweet spots a little bit, the depositional environment of the Charlie Lake contains a lot of variety. So in the 1994 atlas, it states that the depositional environment varies across the basin as there's a long list near shore marine, shoreline, tidal flat, lagoon, sapka, and aeolian environments. So now you've looked at tons of cores and are currently working on the chapter on the Charlie Lake in the atlas that's coming out in 2027. So what do you think has kind of changed about the depositional environments as you've looked at it over the years? Well, as you and I were talking about before the broadcast, the Charlie Lake is up to 400 meters thick and it's <laughs> been largely treated as one lumped interval for yeah. a long time. And what I've looked at uh, recently and a lot of the recent publishings have been 
really focusing on uh, the changes in the depositional environments as you go from the top, the bottom of the Charlie Lake to the top. And, you know, I think uh, there were some publications that talked about uh, the Brassy Lake uh, Aeolian dunes at the, at the base in the Artex. As you go up to the Boundary Lake, it's uh, stromatolites and dolomites. And as you get to the upper Charlie Lake, it turns into uh, marine uh, deposition of sandstones and siltstones. And that would be bioturbated, so it shows that it's open marine. So, And the lithologies really change with the different depositional environments, which will be a huge factor in some of the things we talk about as we continue on here. Well, absolutely. And, and one of the... One of the things that actually is quite unique about the uh, Charlie Lake is how quickly it changes. You get very um, interbedded uh, lithologies that change um, quickly, but cyclically through the entire section. And so it's very difficult petrophysically. And I think that's been the challenge uh, in in the past with uh, exploring for it. And it really wasn't until the mid 2000s and 10s with uh, horizontal multi-stage fracturing uh, that we were able to open up all these layers and, uh, and get into these more unconventional uh, areas of the Charlie Lake. Yeah, so true. Like if you think of even just the Brayburn member being called on average 20 meters thick, then you can divide that into upper, middle and lower. And there's so much vertical variability that you see within it, as well as the lateral changes that you were just discussing there. So one of the big divides that we see is on the Copland unconformity. So it's one of the most extensive unconformities and it divides it into the upper and the lower Charlie Lake. So the angularity of it really indicates a significant tectonic event, which um, you pointed out, it aligns with the Carnean Pluvial episode. So this is a time when significant global climate change occurred and possibly even volcanism. So how do you think this has changed the upper versus the lower Charlie Lake? Well, I'm glad you asked this question. It's one of my favorite uh, parts of uh, the history of the Charlie Lake geology. Um, As you mentioned, at this time, there was a major change in carbonate sedimentation worldwide, actually. And uh, there was a market increase at this point in uh, siliciclastic input into both the Charlie Lake and into many sediments for example, in the Italian Alps, you see the same thing. Um, and this is in contrast to the arid deposition that we saw pretty much through the Montney, um, through the uh, um, the halfway and, and the lower part of the Charlie Lake up to the Coplin. Um, there's worldwide evidence, not only in Italy, but in Australia, Japan, and China. Um, and it confirms basically major changes to the hydrogeological system at the time. And uh, immediately following this, we see a change from arid Sabka type environments below the Copland into marine environments above and much more sand, silt and uh, ter- terrigenous uh, type input into the basin. It really seems that all of the stratigraphic surfaces that are global really have a huge significance to them. And if you looked at, you know, this Charlie Lake unconformity and basins other than the deep basin, you know, would you find some good analogs for the Charlie Lake? Maybe it'd be Sabka. Um, It'd be quite interesting to take a look at. Yeah. One other point, actually, which is really interesting is if you look up into uh, the Rangelia terrain up in uh, the Yukon, there's 
300 kilometer long uh, flood basalts uh, and basically an island arc that was there at the time of the Carnian pluvial, pluvial uh, episode. So it was a major tectonic event. Mm-hmm. And we see that in the Copland that it cuts across many different formations all the way into the Montney as you go to the east. So it's uh, it was a major event. And uh, as I say, it's one of my favorite parts of, of uh, Charlie Lake history. Mm-hmm. So. It's a big one. This episode is sponsored by Spruill. Spruill is a multidisciplinary advisory firm optimizing decision-making in the energy sector by integrating technical, commercial, and operational expertise. They help clients make informed decisions by improving their understanding of value drivers, effectively managing risk, and making smart choices for long-term profitability and strategic growth. So if we take a bit of a closer look at the framework, um, you divided the facies into proximal marine and SABCA intertidal flat, which kind of ties in a little bit with this uh, episode we were just discussing. So within the facies assemblages, you picked eight different facies. Can you describe the patterns in the facies that you see vertically? Yeah, so most of the facies that I looked at were immediately below the Copland because that was the emerging play that we were looking at at the time. Um, so they are only a, a portion of all the facies that are within the entire Charlie Lake. So mm-hmm. there would be um, more facies in the upper Charlie Lake. And as well, as you go down to the base of the Charlie Lake, you get dominated by um, arid aeolian environments and things like that that would also add in some some more facies. So the most of the work that I had done, especially in the core, really focused on the emerging play. Um, I call it the orange marker up to the um, – or the Brayburn interval uh, up to uh, the Copland and conformity. Um, we had I identified basically uh, based on um, a lot of the work by Chelsea Fefchak and Simone Booker, took some of their faces, uh, assemblages, uh, put it together with Frank Stokes' work, and he had described most of the cores in the area and came up with a facies framework. And it largely divides into... Um, Marine um, and and Sabka intertidal flat, um, and the dominant reservoir facies in the lower part of the Charlie Lake is a micritic dolomite that is within the Sabka intertidal flat um, facies assemblage. That's such such a good point too that you really built on historic work that's out there, um, and I like that you know, you've kind of identified which facies is the best. So how does the porosity and permeability change between the facies? Uh, basically, it goes from about 0 to 20% in the micritic dolomite facies. Um, and it is, you know, 0. 0.01 to over 100 millidarcies, depending on, on that. Uh, that's been diagenetically altered either through burial or through other processes, uh, it was actually originally uh, mostly a lime mud or a stromatolytic tidal or uh, algal mat um, lime mud that's been converted into a dolomite, and that's where a lot of the porosity and and permeability comes from in that facies. The other main porous facies is actually just above the Copland um, in as we get into a siltstone, and that's I call it. It's just below the um, Boundary Lake Anhydrite, and it's a marine dolomitic sandstone facies. And it shows some reservoir quality with porosities from 0 to 12%, so a little bit lower, and porosity is kind of up to 3 millidarcies, so a little bit lower quality reservoir. 
Um, the interbeds between below the copal and the interbeds that are in between the mycritic dolomite are either anhydrate, which have no porosity and permeability, or a dolomite cemented siltstone or mudstone that again has very poor reservoir quality. So you've got basically these repeated cycles of mycritic dolomite uh, with uh, um, anhydrite and then to mudstone and then back into dolomite. And these cycles repeat as you get up to the copland unconformity and then it's truncated. So. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier, it's really the horizontal multifracts that unlocked it, which makes so much sense when you think about the anhydrite cement, and then the thin dolomitic intervals that have the good porosities. So the tight play um, needs that technology to be recovered. Yeah, you only ever saw production from these discrete beds when they got thick enough and in some specific areas around around the area. And and as we, what I was looking at and looking at with my engineer was, we saw these good completions and they would come on and produce some oil, but then they wouldn't sustain themselves. And what we're able to do is connect up a lot of these compartments within the lower part of the Charlie Lake and get a well to produce on a horizontal basis. Mm -hmm. So if we were looking for it, um, you know, the porosity is really key. You mentioned that there's dual porosity and it's made up of the fractures and then the matrix. And you've seen this in core CT scans and thin sections. So how would you describe these fractures and how pervasive are they? Well, these fractures are actually facies specific. So they're actually only in the two main reservoir facies. So you don't of see course. them. They don't actually go through the entire section. So you know that they're not tectonic. Um, you know they're not regional in scale. Um, so they're actually uh, diage diagenetic or contractional in nature. And they're actually mostly, if they're cemented, they're cemented with anhydrite. Sometimes they're cemented a bit with uh, quartz uh, cements, but generally I've seen them also open as well. So they're uh, essentially something to do with, and I haven't figured this out yet, but something to do with the diagenetic process or the lithification process in that particular, those particular facies. And it's been obviously enhancing the porosity and the permeability in those zones, in those uh, reservoir units. Yeah, open fractures would really increase that permeability. Are the petrophysical well logs picking up these fractures? They do pick them up in terms of uh, overall porosity, I think, in some cases. So in terms of the total porosity, but they're so small um, on the millimeter scale that it's way below log resolution. So you can't actually uh, directly detect the fractures in, in these facies. So then the logs would almost underestimate the porosity there um, if it was fractured, hey? In a lot of cases, we see that um, with the interbedding, it's, it's uh, petrophysics is very, very tough because you have rapid changes, which is uh, uh, makes it difficult for your petrophysicist to keep up with those changes. So Yeah, it's quite a task. So the Charlie Lake contains the dolomite and anhydrite cements. To characterize the best Charlie Lake reservoir, you used a cementation exponent. So how did you come up with this? And was it a key to unlocking the play? I, I wouldn't call it a key to unlocking the play, but it, it's a key to understanding the play. And it was actually later after we started drilling that I went back and actually reflected on some of the CT scans we had done and, and actually identified the microfractures. So the cementation exponent was in order for us uh, to get this di these different lithologies and identify them, we did do some 
laboratory measurements of cementation exponent, which are very difficult to get, especially in tighter reservoirs. So we got a few points for the cementation. And later I went back and actually had a look at uh, um, the microfractures and did some study and looked at uh, comparing that, that to what the total system um, cementation exponent was. And then the difference between that comparison is actually the fractures that's in the system. Um, and as you, I, I'm not sure if you're aware, but, and not a lot of people are, I wasn't before I started working on this, but the one that you measure is actually the matrix block. So in between the fractures, that's the cementation that you measure, cementation exponent that you measure. And the one that I based the fracture work on was actually using a picket plot and calculating a cementation exponent off the picket plot. And what I found was actually that the picket plot cementation exponent was much lower than the measured one. And so it, the measured one was around two. And the uh, one that I got off the picket plot was 1.55, which was quite a bit lower. And of course, fractures have a cementation exponent of around one. And so it's the combination of the two systems, the dual porosity system that lowers the, the overall cementation exponent. And from that, you're able to actually estimate what the proportion of fractures are in those facies uh, from the difference in the cementation exponent. So it's very empirical. And it's uh, very regional in scale, but it, it is a way that you can also feed that back into the engineering and upscale your matrix porosity in order to account for the fractures. Yeah, and I think you showed too, your picket plots had a bit of a tie to different facies for how cemented it was. Um, is that because of the fractures? Um, well, I tied it to facies because that was the only place the fractures were. So I actually separated it into the two facies and, and also the measured cementation exponent in the, in the two different facies were different and uh, as you would expect. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, so as we're developing the Charlie Lake, you know, the subcrop edges have really been explored and discovered a, quite a few hydrocarbon traps with them. There's further exploration and development and optimization coming up in the Charlie Lake. What do you see as being next? Well, I, I see this as, being the next big play and especially the next big oil play. Um, as we talked about, I think you and I were talking about it before uh, the, the podcast. Um, you're going to see it all the way from Wembley up to Boundary Lake uh, that they'll be drilling in many different units actually. And, and I think that's the next step is um, the different units within the lower part of the Charlie Lake. And again, as I mentioned at the beginning, we've tended to lump this thing together into one big unit. And I think just splitting it out into the different uh, lithologic and sedimentological units will allow us different plays in different areas in different units. Yeah, the Lower Charlie Lake is quite an interesting play and thank you for sharing all your knowledge about it today. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's, it's been a pleasure. Stone's Notes is brought to you by Stone Consulting. We can be found online at www.stoneconsulting.ca or send us an email anytime. On behalf of everyone here, I'm Maureen Stonehouse. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.